This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. My guest is Danielle Schutz, the managing partner and managing director of the New Community Transformation Fund, a $50 million equity venture fund for BIPOC founders in Denver. She is also president and CEO of Wealth Equity Enterprise, her holdings company, which owns several businesses that supports the mission of building BIPOC wealth and leadership. Keep listening to hear how Danielle is shooting to normalize Black wealth. We discussed her experience as a teen mom, her leadership and entrepreneurship journey, how she is building BIPOC wealth and leadership, and the new Community Transformation Fund and its unique approach. Before we delve into the episode, for my entrepreneur friends, when was the last time you had a good rest? I'm a big proponent of hard work, but also rest and relaxation. The holistic hustle is all about working smart and taking rests. Visit FarringdonJets.com to start planning your next trip to rest and relax in the height of luxury. Visit FarringdonJets.com. Click the link in the show notes for special offers. Danielle, welcome to the WTF Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I know you started out as a young mom having your first child, your son, at age 16. Let's start the conversation from there. I want to start talking about your journey from early. You've been a boss for a very long time. There's been conversations recently in the news about Naomi Osaka, who is having a baby, not as young as you were when you had your first child, but there's been conversations about her ability to come back and be successful. What are your thoughts? I have lots of thoughts about that and the way women are treated around having children in our society. I think it's highly problematic. I had my babies at 16 and 21, so I was a teen mom. So everything that I've built, the root of it is that I'm a mom. They make me who I am as a leader and the way I am with people and nurture. The way I lead all comes from being a mom. I think sometimes just the narrative is the problem. And then people don't come back because they start to believe this narrative about who they are and whether or not they can do it again. So when the self-doubt creeps in, I think especially in tennis, it's such a high pressure sport in the first place. It's an individual sport. It's a lonely sport from what I understand. I think it's hard. And I think the reason a lot of women haven't come back and become champions after having babies in tennis is because of this noise in the atmosphere. I think for me, I've had to get really good at not listening to the noise. I have a village of people who helped me raise my kids and there's no guilt about that that sits in me. I think that's how we should raise children. I think I had a lot of benefit because I was so young when I had my first. I got married at 19 and then had Layla at 21 when I was in college. And so I always had support. I always had people helping me do it. And I don't think we give women enough support. No one knows what they're doing, regardless of the age. I hope for Naomi, because she is so young, she can really come back is that she just drowns the noise out. She's going to have to, because there's no reason that she can't come back and be a champion after this. I hope that she paves the way for other women to do it. You clearly were not in a real at all <laughs> by having your children young, because you were a CFO at 26. Yes. And your yeah. career has been a steamroll ever since. 
Yeah, it was and, the opposite of derail for me. You know, I think it focused me. I was like, it gave me a stubborn focus around people telling you, oh, you're you're not going to be anything now. Like, give it up. I was just rebellious against that in a very strong, deep way. And I was like, I just want to show you. I'm sure the first 15 years was just proving people wrong in my spirit. That was a fuel source for me. And then eventually it's become other things. It's become more about me and who I am and understanding my strengths and my own greatness and less about proving people wrong. That's what it's become in more recent years. But yeah, it's just a focus it gave me. I wasn't going to let my son's life be any different than I would have if I had had him 10 years later, right? I had so much support and being focused and driving. I had a lot of fun, right? I had a lot of fun because I was so young with my kids. Work is my play. I work for play. I always have. Now, if I look back on it and I drown out the noise of mom guilt and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, no, that you would not have been the mom that you have been if you didn't have your career. That was a part of what made me who I am as a mom. And so I think accepting that, owning that real out loud has been really helpful for me to just drown out guilt and noise, other people's opinions on how you're supposed to do the things. My kids are the most phenomenal humans I've ever met. They're kind and they're smart and they're good and they're wise and they teach me things, you know? So that's it. That's all I can ask for. That's great. You've gone on to have an illustrious career and you've gathered lots of insights that you share with other women in yeah. business and leadership through your daily boss up program and lots of other things that you've gone on to do. What insights can you share as a seasoned executive leader and venture investor with women of color about leadership and growing profitable businesses? You've done all of that and done it at a very high level. Thank you. Because I became a leader so young, I was 26. So overnight, I'd only had three years of my career even before that, right? I'd only been out of college for three years and, and then I had a team 30. No, no, how, how did that happen? I know, that's wild, right? Yeah, so I was a financial analyst for a couple of years and then I went over to the state health department and the CFOs left. You know, I can say this, I'm a talented finance person. It's just my natural space, being an economist and sort of not an accountant. I'm not in a great accountant. I have to surround myself with good accountants, but my ability to predict things and tell stories with numbers and understand what stories the numbers tell us so that we can make decisions about human behavior, that's where I found my quick, quick place in the world. And that applies. I was really good at it. And within a year, they were like, we want you to take over as a CFO. So overnight, you go from being an individual contributor who's really good at a skill, your skills, to having to manage people. Actually, I just fell down a lot in that first year of being a CFO and really didn't get it right and was working constantly because I didn't even understand delegation. I didn't even have a leader that I knew how to emulate yet because I had only had three years of my career. Because I became a leader so young, I know that leadership is as much a hard technical skill as anything, right? You don't want me in an Excel spreadsheet anymore, but if you need to build a team or something's on fire in a company, you're going to want me there, right? I'm creative. So being able to be a leader and be creative and think about numbers through the lens of somebody who's got a really creative mind has been really helpful. I just work on leadership every day and some days I don't get it right still and some days I do. And it's just the skill that has been at the foundation of everything else I've done. I think that's why everything else I've done has been as successful as it has. I always say, if everything you touched was going to turn to gold, would you be careful about what you touched and how you spent your time? If every minute of your time was worth a million dollars, would you think about your time differently? And so that's been how I've had to really cultivate leadership, especially as I launched a venture capital fund, which is unbelievably difficult to do. Let me not even pretend this is not the hardest thing I've ever done. 
in my career. It's as hard as entrepreneurship and then times 10, right? Because you have to bring in investors who trust you to invest their money, which is a whole different game. It's been so hard and I've had to manage my energy in a really different way and think about who I say yes to and who I say no to. And what does my calendar look like and what drains me and what fills me up? So that's the journey I've been on the last two years. That's the next step on my leadership journey on really getting precise around how much every minute of my energy matters in the day. Yeah, me and the WTF podcast listeners are very grateful to bag <laughs> some of your time and your wisdom. You talk about the importance of leadership as both a hard and a soft skill, your ability to scale, not just the company, but to scale and grow people mm -hmm. in the process is not a skill that all leaders have. They no. get the job. Like you said, you're a great numbers person. You understand that. If there are fires to be put out, people want you in the room. But what you also bring into the room with you is your understanding of how to scale and grow people. I think that makes you a much more approachable and successful leader because mm -hmm. you know how to do both. Yeah, my team is my family. Back to the mom thing, right? I grew up with my son. We grew up together. I know what it means to be responsible for someone and need to lead somebody, but also to learn from them at the same time. He's such a teacher for me. My daughter's such a teacher for me because I didn't have this hierarchical approach to being a parent because I couldn't. I didn't know enough to even try to implement that, right? We were in this thing together, this thing called life. I think that's how my team and I are. I'd hope they'd say that. It's like, we are family. We are in this thing together. They teach me as much as I teach them. They're complementary, right? If you're hiring a bunch of people that are just like you, you cannot build a successful company that way. You have to know yourself so well so that you can really bring in complementary skills because that compounds on itself, just like money, right? You, you need to diversify what it looks like, your talent and the energy and the brain power of your team is really important to me. I just think if I had to narrow it down to three skills, it's that it's that vulnerability, which is really important. Authenticity, which at the root of that is vulnerability and transparency, self-awareness and self-management. And then courage. you got to have audacity. You have to be someone who believes you can do anything or that if you say you're going to do it, it's already written. That's what I say often. If everything came out of my mouth, what's going to happen? I'm going to be really focused about what comes in the mouth. I think just having that audacity gets stripped from us as women and as people of color gets stripped from us by the system in many ways because there's so much noise. There's so much feedback that you're always trying to filter through. So letting the noise go away is so important for me. I've been really good at just being like, mm -mm, that's not mine. That noise isn't mine. Someone told me that very early in my career. Learn to filter what's yours and what's not yours quickly so that you can move forward having that courage and being able to take those risks and then just the management of your energy and the understanding that you're the asset in a company. You're the number one asset on the balance sheet. So if you're drained, the company's drained. If your team's drained, the company's drained. If you don't know how to let go and delegate, that directly affects your bottom line. It's all intertwined. Our human leadership behavior with successful companies. You're the asset. No imposter <laughs> syndrome over here. Your t-shirt says normalize Black well. Yes. Let's talk about your focus on using wealth building tools to create systems for change. What motivated you to start your holdings company, Wealth Equity Enterprises? How does it build BIPOC wealth and leadership? Yeah, you know, as I've been involved in community my whole career, right? There's been this thread for me around what it takes to grow and scale companies in certain spaces that we don't apply when we're talking about Black folks. In the United States of America, we know how to build wealth better than any country in the world. 
But when you start talking about black folks and brown folks and women, then we start to respond with a charitable response versus an investment. And that started to drive me crazy when I was a CFO. People find that much easier to do when it comes to black people. It's easier to treat it as a charitable endeavor than an investment. Do you have any insights around that? Yeah. Yeah, that's the bias in the system, right? When you talk about what bias looks like, implicit or explicit, that's what it is. It's this feeling, even really well-intended people, like that we have to be saved. That's just started to really tick away at me because we built this country. (laughs) So to feel like we have to be saved when we have always had this wealth of our ability, of our knowledge, of our strengths, and it's just been stripped away in so many ways by the system that you know, for me, it's like, we know how to build wealth. Money compounds on itself. So we're not investing in an entire chunk of the United States market, which I have coined the domestic emerging market because we invest in international markets all the time, Venezuela and Argentina and some of these markets that are emerging and that are sort of unproven and have low hanging fruit, but we don't even do it here at home is wild to me. I think we're in a place where we're not going to grow the U.S. economy in the same way we've seen unless we start to have more participants in how it grows. We know it grows through investments and home ownership and people having equity of things and getting loans from banks and participating in the financial markets. Like that's how you grow an economy. If you got 70% of your population that doesn't participate because it was built that way, how do you actually grow an economy? The United States will be 50% people of color by the year 2045. Well, when you talk about turning an economic machine, that's tomorrow. So I don't just feel like this is the right thing to do. I actually feel like it's the necessary thing to do from an economics perspective. I don't know how we're going to continue to be the greatest wealth power in the world when we've left out 70% of our population. Private equity is a $70 trillion industry. And women and people of color distribute 1.5% of it, making decisions on who gets investments. That's a huge gap. And we're not talking about charity anymore. If we keep trying to fix problems with 5% of the assets while 95% of the assets go elsewhere, the math is just not mathing anymore. That's what I always say. So I just felt like I had to be a part of the solution, a part of this conversation. I started Venture is, is an asset class that is with people's ability to let it be risky. It's a risk, high risk, high return asset class. So the more risk tolerance that an asset class has, the more you can have this conversation around people of color and women, because the folks making the decisions will inherently through bias, whether they intend to or not, believe you're a riskier bet because they don't know you. I believe I'm less risky, right? Because I know myself. And so I believe people like me are less risky. That's just how it works. So you are in this game where you can replace the word bias with the word risk. Now you're in the year 2023 and you've got an entire chunk of your entire U.S. population that's been completely left out because of that decision making process on how it works to make an investment. So I just said, if not me, then who? I know there's people all over the country who feel that way and are starting funds and are taking these huge jumps and this huge risk to go out there and be a part of a solution that I have a lot of hope about. I've been speaking with Danielle Schutz, investor, entrepreneur, and proponent of Building Black Wealth about her early career, corporate and community leadership, the lack of equity and ways in which we can bridge the equity gap. And now we're about to transition into talking more specifically about the new Community Transformation Fund, which is a $50 million fund. Keep listening. So with that said... What's the new Community Transformation Fund? Why is this a unique opportunity with a unique approach? 
Yeah, it's NCTF Denver is a venture capital fund. We're early stage, so we invest at pre-seed seed and some Series A round. 75% of the fund is targeted locally, which I think is what our unique approach is. I think that's incredibly necessary. You have to know your market. If you're trying to invest in women and people of color, you have to know where they are. You have to know what they're working on. You have to know what they need. We've built an ecosystem to support our investment. So it's not just a check. Like, that's not how this works. I know people think that, right? Like you get capital and you just go and you're so brilliant. You get capital, you get advisors, you get board people. Sometimes we replace CEOs. Sometimes we give you a CFO of our choice because that's how it works. What I'm good at is growing and scaling businesses. I'm a good investor, but I'm a great business person. I know how to grow and scale companies. I can pull levers in P&Ls. I can tell you where you're wasting money. I can tell you what to stop doing. I can tell you what your customers are thinking. And I've surrounded myself with an investment committee and a team, a village again, right? That is the same way. We know how to grow and scale companies. We want to engineer the wins. So we're high touch, old school venture, I say. We take board seats and are really supporting our founders in growing and scaling their companies. It might be a great idea, but if I feel like we don't have a position in it where like we can't help, we might not make the investment because we really want to be a part of growing and scaling businesses. I think private equity and especially venture capital has gotten away from it, where your valuation is just based on the check size of the last person versus did you actually grow <laughs> between the periods that you were raising money? We've got to get back to that because that's a dangerous market to be in. I think founders of color have an advantage. No one's just giving them money based on some inflated valuation, right? They can take a dollar and run because they haven't had investment. So that's our unique approach. I think being here in Colorado and having grown my career here and worked with businesses has just given me social capital, both on getting investors and on pipeline. It's been great. We have a public-private partnership. The state of Colorado is an investor in our fund. The city and county of Denver is an investor in our fund. Bank of America led our founding round. And then we've got some high net worth individuals, both from venture capital and other areas. Colorado Housing and Finance Authority is in our funds. We have folks from all over who are in this to develop and keep growing the Colorado economy in a more equitable way than it's been growing in the last seven years. I think that's the way to do funds like this. We kind of take a private equity approach to venture capital and we'll invest in 25 to 30 companies over the next four years. And most of them will be in Colorado or willing to locate here in Colorado. We have big dreams for the country globally around what we're doing after this. How many companies has the fund invested in so far since it's been up and running? I know it's a pretty new fund. Yeah, pretty new fund. We launched last July. I did my first close in October and we made an investment almost immediately. So we invested up front $250,000 in a Series A round. We've approved now four investments that'll go out this quarter. We're going to lead around on a fifth investment that is we're going to help them raise their seed round. What are the most significant challenges that founders should be aware of when raising their first round of funding? Yeah, I think entrepreneurs raising money is so, so difficult. I think having your team in a really good place is good. You know, something I ask people to stay away from, this is me, is sort of like using all the venture terms and not really knowing what they mean. I'm not looking for that. I want to know who you are. I want to know what you're struggling with. I want to know who you are as the CEO. I want to know where you need help beyond this check. So really understanding that and being authentic, especially in a market that it's the private equity market reset last year, along with so much of the market because of post-pandemic market conditions. It's hard to raise money right now. It used to be 
flowing for the last five years. And you could come in with an idea on a napkin and, and get money, not us, but <laughs> that's what, what's happening in venture capital. And Definitely not us. <laughs> that's never been our case. But what is your competitive advantage? I think sitting with people that understand the market so that you can describe the competitive advantage of your company. And here's the other thing that I'll give everyone advice on. Go in and sell your story this way. Capitalism tells us that businesses can be created to solve problems that people will pay for. That's what it is. That's what our market is. I believe in that. I fundamentally believe in it. I just believe most people aren't participating in it. So we have to open the gates of it up to everybody, but it works. It builds wealth, right? We just have done it inequitably. And because of systemic racism, it just hasn't worked for everybody even close. In fact, it's worked against a lot of folks. If you're building a company, I think the most successful companies that have the greatest returns, they sell the market, both the problem and the solution, right? You didn't know that you needed to see your friend's kids that you went to high school with 20 years later until Facebook told you that. And now most people don't live without it, right? You didn't know that you needed to be able to order anything you ever wanted online and it could be in your house at two days until Amazon told us that. And now we can't live without it. Those are companies that turn into $100 billion companies, right? Because they sold the market, both the problem and the solution at the same time. Well, if you think about who's been making decisions on what's a good problem and will consumers pay for it, there's an entire market out here of the people who cut checks don't have a lived experience related to your problem. We're going to sell this market a lot of problems and a lot of solutions because we don't know that folks need at-home fertility testing. A woman is going to start a business like that and has, right? A woman started TaskRabbit. Of course. Like think about the lived experience with needing somebody to be able to come in and hang TVs and curtains and work on your plumbing. That's what I mean by this lived experience of people of color in this country and lived experience of women in this country. Only they are going to be able to create the businesses of tomorrow. So remember that from a competitive advantage perspective, drown out the noise. It's hard to sell people the problem and the solution, but it's also the way in which you can have a multi-billion dollar company. And that's what we're, I want to make, you know, have a bunch of hundred million dollar companies started by black and brown folks and women in Colorado. And that'll take a little debt, but then People who start venture funds and private equity funds are usually people who exited companies at $100 million. So now you got millions of dollars. You can go start a fund yourself. And that's the ripple of this. That's the compounding nature that's of this it right over there. time for overall economy. So people will be like, you know, like 25 companies, how, how's that going to help the economy? I'm like, this is how it works. This will build generational wealth for years and years and years. And you know what else? We hire people that look like us. We'll diversify industries. Our C-suites will look like us. Our boards will look like us. So all the work and all the noise in the system to try to diversify this, if we start with investment tools, it takes care of that. The ripple of it works. We know that because it's worked in the opposite direction. That's how you can have a market with $70 trillion that 97% of it is run by white men. It's because that's how it worked. The ripple of it over and over and over and over again and the social capital Part of this is incredible. You can't even quantify it. Wealth moves around on paper. And I just wanted to start a fund to start that ripple in my community. And I hope other people will do the same. There have been more and more Black fund managers entering the space over the past few years. And I think that can only help to create more opportunities for founders of color to connect to capital. Danielle, as we get ready to wrap up, what gives you hope to keep driving the wealth building work that you are doing? 
I am an economist, a behavioral economist, fundamentally at my core. And I believe that our country is in a place where we don't have a choice. So put aside hearts and minds for a second. I walk through the world believing that 400 years into slavery out of Africa, I think most people's hearts want to fix this. We all have inherited this system. Every single one of us have inherited this system. And now we have this polarizing politics where the narrative isn't even talking about the economy. All white supremacy ever was, was an economic policy <laughs> that has been upheld by one policy after another that has driven inequities in our system. And now it's worked so well that being born a woman or being born a person of color is such a predictor of your net worth that we have a major problem. We can predict in 10 years what it's going to look like for us to be the greatest wealth power or not in this country because race is a predictor of outcome, period. So when you look at those numbers and you look at the fact that we're closing more businesses than we start every day as the capitalist society of the world, or that we're taking less businesses to IPO than the top 10 developing countries, we're not taking as many companies public by a long shot, and we haven't been for a while now, that's all problematic indicators of us losing our grip on being the greatest wealth power. I'm really a systems girl, a numbers girl, an economy girl. I just have hope because I know that we will be the greatest wealth power in the world no matter what we have to do, even if it means ending racism. If racism is not working for us to be the greatest wealth power anymore, you're going to start to see it go away. You are. That's why you're seeing Black fund managers and millions of dollars. There was billions of dollars post-George Floyd that came into the market for Black founders. And then that didn't work because they couldn't get to Black founders. So now they're saying, let's give it to Black fund managers. You're seeing, you know, some of the richest people in the world dedicate hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to Black fund managers. And you have to say, like, why would they do that? And it's that they know that's where they're going to make their money going forward. And I believe the same thing. I don't even think we're talking about, oh, is it the nice thing to do? And yeah, like, everybody's heart. It's never about what's the nice thing to do. No, no, no. Like, this isn't about the, this isn't about people anymore. This is about a system that has worked phenomenally and is now working against us. In the United States of America, you cannot have that many people who aren't building wealth, don't own homes, don't have banking relationships, businesses aren't capitalized, don't have small business loans. You can't have this many people not going to college and graduating from college when you want to stay an innovative leader in the world. There's so many problems that our system has created that I think we're about to walk through a, an economic revolution that will create a, a racial evolution. And that's why I have hope because the math's not mathing anymore. Like we can't continue to operate our systems this way. Otherwise, the whole country, the whole country's economy is at risk and it's at risk now. It's not touchy-feely, but it, it gets me up every day because I think I'm participating and in my lifetime, we'll get to see a real shift in policy around doing away with racial policies that uh, prevent people from participating in an economy and building wealth for their families and their um, community. And yeah. It's been wonderful having you on the WTF podcast and learning from your insights and all about what you are doing with the Community Transformation Fund. Before you go, tell the listeners where they can learn more about the fund and where they can follow you on socials. Yeah, follow me on LinkedIn, Danielle Schutz. I post a lot there. We'll be talking a lot more about the economics of this and blogs and things like that as we move forward and get updates on where we are with the fund. And then if you go to 
the New Community Transformation Fund and then slash Denver. Want to learn about your companies wherever you are in the country. We still want to hear. You can fill out a survey and find out if you're a good fit and stay in touch with us and keep up on all that we've got going on. Danielle, thank you so much. Thank you. To my listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't keep good content to yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, let me know by rating, reviewing, and sharing this episode with three friends. Subscribe to the podcast at its home on the Alive Podcast Network. The podcast also streams on your favorite podcast streaming platforms. Follow the podcast on Instagram at where's the funding underscore podcast. Follow the show on LinkedIn and follow me, Michelle J. McKenzie, on LinkedIn as well. Episodes stream on Fridays, so join me next Friday for another episode.